Please take your scriptures and open with me to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of that chapter. While you're turning there, I just want to uh, congregationally thank um, the music ministry for doing such a great job all these weeks. Every week in and week out, they bring us deep, rich, uh, Christ-centered music. Uh, they over here on Wednesdays practicing. Um, also want to want to thank all those who are uh, leading us in worship. I was just sitting there and, and just marveling at, at what a what a great job you men do. So thank you for putting the time into that, uh, for thinking about it, for praying about it. And it really shows. You really lead us well to the throne of grace. So if you're sitting here and you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, I want you to take out your phones after the service and order it and read it next week. It is... Almost bar none, one of the most useful books you will ever read in your Christian life. Uh, It's one of the most helpful books because what John Bunyan did is he took the Christian experience and he tells it in an analogy that, that is so clear and so helpful. He outlines so well our experience, this side of glory. From the slough of despond that we all get caught in from time to time. To the dark river which must be crossed before we go into the celestial city. From the difficulty hill that, that shows us and explains the ups and downs and difficulty of our experience. To the spiritual battles that we all face in Humiliation Valley. From the palace beautiful where we find rest, where we learn, and where we, we are equipped to go on in our pilgrimage. To Doubting Castle. If you remember that portion of John Bunyan's analogy, Christian and his friend Hopeful are caught by giant despair, and they're thrown into the dungeon, the dungeon of Doubting Castle. There they linger for days, in the pitch dark, with no light, no food, no water. Giant despair comes down to them at one point and beats them within an inch of their life and then shows them the bones of other people that, that found themselves in the dungeon of Doubting Castle and how they never left. And then he leaves a knife and a vial of poison, if you remember, as the the only way out. The only way out of doubt and despair. Bunyan used Doubting Castle to reveal the weight that doubt and despair can have on a Christian life. And many a strong Christian, many a strong Christian has been in Doubting Castle. The list who have have wrote about their own experience, like Spurgeon, like Schaefer, like Martin Luther, like C.S. Lewis, like John Calvin. 
And like in the scripture today, John the Baptist. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 11. Now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence takes it by force. But all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father God, again, I pray that you will give us ears to hear what you have for us today. Soften our hearts. Let it be as a garden prepared and fertilized for your precious seed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those are words Jesus used when he was explaining the, the, the kingdom of God. To a doubting audience. You will see it used six more times in the coming chapters. Because we're entering a new section of Matthew. A section where it's a transitional section. Where where opposition is beginning to mount against Jesus. Where many people begin to turn away from Jesus. When doubt begins to grow about who this Jesus is. And so he begins to say more often, he who has ears, let him hear. Meaning the truths about the kingdom and its king are clearly being given. Listen closely, he's saying. And those who are willing to listen and consider, as Isaiah says, might see and hear and understand and turn to him. 
And there are basically two groups in our text today that need to listen closely. Two groups that are currently living in Doubting Castle. And the first is John the Baptist. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or we shall we look for another? Doesn't that strike you as so strange? John the Baptist is sending a message and going, okay, are you the one? Doesn't that sound strange to you? I mean, John the Baptist is, is held up in Scripture as one of the strongest Christians And yet here he is, doubting. I mean, think about the history of John the Baptist just for a minute. So I'm sit back and listen and, and think about him. He was filled from the, with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, Scripture says. When, when Mary came to Elizabeth and Elizabeth was pregnant, that John the Baptist leapt in her womb. He grew up knowing he was special. He was a Nazarite. That's what the angel told Zechariah to raise him as. Don't cut his hair. Don't let him drink any fermented drink. He knew that there was something special about him. And then just remember what he said about Jesus when he was in the wilderness. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He identified Jesus. He said, after me comes one who ranks before me because, above me because he was before me. He talks about Jesus' eternality. Think of what John saw after he baptized Jesus in the Jordan. It says in Matthew 3 that, that he, after he baptized him, he came up and, and the Holy Spirit came down visibly like a dove. And think about what John the Baptist heard right after that experience. I'm sure it was kind of a booming voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He heard the voice of God identifying him. And a few months later, he asked the question, are you the one? John's doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. John is in the dungeon of Doubting Castle right now. Now, by way of application, this should, in some ways, encourage you and I, shouldn't it? It should encourage us. Everyone, even the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John, spends time in Doubting Castle. I mean, just look through Scripture. Abraham spent time there. He doubted the promises of God and slept with Hagar. Moses spent time in Doubting Castle. He didn't believe that he was the chosen one. Elijah spent time in Doubting Castle. 
I mean, remember that scene right after fire comes down and consumes the, the, the prophets of Baal? He flees into the desert because he thinks, I'm the only one I've lost. What hope is there? Where's God? David wrote time and time again, My God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I draw near to you, but you don't, don't draw near to me. He spent time in Doubting Castle. John Calvin wrote, Doubt is part of the Christian faith. Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt for any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. It's true. C.S. Lewis wrote, Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which I think sometimes think the whole thing improbable. Brothers and sisters, it's part of the Christian experience. See, spending time in Down and Castle, as Bunyan portrays it, is part and parcel of our journey. It's not a sin to doubt. It's not a sin to spend some time in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. But, brothers and sisters, it's no place to make your home. Because the bones that giant despair shows Christian. Because faith can grow cold with prolonged stays in Doubting Castle. And apparently, that's what happened to John. He was quite literally in a castle dungeon, in prison. And he sat there. And there's a lot that can assail your faith when you're in prison. Like isolation. Isolation from other Christians is a real danger. It's fertile ground for doubts. God proclaims early on in Scripture, does he not? It is not good for man to be alone. That is something from the very beginning he knows that it is not good to be alone. It's not good to be isolated from others. And that's as true today as it was then. One of the most underreported issues of this pandemic that we're going through is the emotional fallout that has happened over the past year. According to Sujata Gupta of the Science News, she writes, walling people off from one another for months on end could trigger secondary effects of the pandemic, such as depression, fear, stress, insomnia, substance abuse, and even suicide. And we've seen that to be true. Maybe... You sitting here have had some of those effects of our isolation. I can stand and tell you right now that I can look back over this year and I'm not a depressive person, but I've struggled greatly this year. I think with depression. Because it's not good for man to be alone. And prolonged isolation has negative effects on the Christian. It's like taking a, that, that 
wonderful analogy of taking a hot coal out of the fire and placing it next out from among the coals and and almost instantly it goes from red to black. And you place it back in and you see it come back. That's why church membership, that's why covenant living is so critical to the Christian experience, brother and sister. It keeps your faith spiritually hot being among other believers. To be consistently and intimately involved in each other's lives is critical. Where they know you and you know them. Where they care for you and you care for them. Where you are encouraged and you encourage likewise. Where they admonish and you admonish likewise. Covenant living. Being in each other's lives. Just think of all the scriptures that tell us to encourage one another, spur one another on, mourn and rejoice with one another, admonish one another, build one another up, confess your sins to one another, care for one another, one another, one another. It is not good for man to be alone. Listen to what Max Lucado writes. He says, Christ distributes courage through community. He dissipates doubts through fellowship. He never deposits all knowledge in one person, but distributes pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to many. When you interlock your understanding with mine and we share our discoveries, when we mix and mingle and confess and pray, Christ speaks. So true. I tell people all the time, as a matter of fact, I told one person this week this very thing, the Christian life is made is like a three-legged stool. The word, prayer, and fellowship. And you take one of those away and you cannot stand. And the one that most people do not have in their life is covenant living. God's explicit plan for you, brother and sister, is to be a committed member of a gospel-preaching church and to be in and among that group a lot. Not to be a lone jigsaw puzzle. And if you try, you will spend more and more time in Doubting Castle. Secondly, suffering can cause doubt. The historian Josephus tells us that after John's arrest by Herod the Tetrarch for condemning his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, John, uh, Herod placed John in the hot, nasty dungeon at the fortress Mercurius in the searing mountains near the Dead Sea. And there John sat, sweating and thirsting in the dark for weeks and for months. Suffering is fertile ground for doubt. And doubt can cause confusion. Doubt causes confusion. Many Christians are confused by by suffering in their lives. Especially younger 
and and more immature Christians. They just get confused by suffering. What's going on here? They think it is inconsistent with the life that Christ has called them to. They've been told that accepting Christ solves all their life's problems. And when it doesn't, they get crushed like a paper cup. What's going on here? I'm a Christian. Life should be starting to to align perfectly. That's why it's so important for you and I when we share our our our, our faith with, with people that at some time in that sharing that we, we talk about counting the cost of becoming a Christian. Because you're, you're not only adding something to your life, you're not only subtracting something from your life, the, the penalty of sin, but you're adding something to your life too. You're adding additional suffering for the name of Christ. Because believers have been improperly evangelized and taught when they encounter suffering in their lives, they tumble down into Doubting Castle. But regardless of the reason you might be in Doubting Castle, the way out is the same, is always the same. And that is remembering God's what God's word has said about suffering. Remembering what God has said about suffering. Remember, remember that in all things God works towards good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is doing something good in your life through that difficult experience. He's doing something good. We have to recall not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, 1 Peter 4. Suffering is part of the Christian experience. Remember, it's suffering, then glory. We have to recollect that these sufferings have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may, be, may prove genuine, First Peter 1. When you suffer, brothers and sisters, there should be something in there that is encouraging to you. That your faith is genuine because you're suffering. Maybe that's a little of what James is talking about in the first chapter when he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. Because you're experiencing exactly what your Savior did. And no servant is above his master, remember? If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, remember? If they hated me, they'll hate you, remember? But most likely, John doubts were born of shattered expectations. Look again at verse 2 with me. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. Stop right there. When John heard about the deeds of Christ, it seems that something about what Jesus was doing was causing his doubt, doesn't it? 
He had pointed to Jesus as the Messiah and now was doubting because he heard about what Jesus was doing, about what Jesus was doing in chapters 8 and 9. What was Jesus doing in chapters 8 and 9? He was going throughout all the land, teaching, proclaiming the kingdom, and healing. That's what it says. Those are the bookends. Mark Four, the end of Mark 4 and the end of Mark 9. He's doing all of that. Jesus was going through all those cities and he was ministering in grace and mercy. And that's not what John was expecting. John was not expecting Jesus to be doing this ministry of mercy. If you look closely at John's preaching, he clearly expected a Messiah full of judgment and justice and wrath and vengeance, right? That's what you hear him saying out in the wilderness. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Or another time he said the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. We just read his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barns. And he, i.e. the Messiah Christ, will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was looking for this Messiah to come as the conquering king. He clearly understood from Isaiah this this king coming with justice. If you look at Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, those all teach that when the Messiah comes, it will be a time of divine retribution. But look at what Jesus answers in verse 4. He says, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. What's absolutely fascinating about what Jesus is doing here is that he is pulling from exactly the same chapters that John is pulling from to validate his ministry. In Isaiah 26 and 29 and 35 and 61. So which is right? Is is John right? Or, I mean, obviously Jesus is right. Which is it? It's actually both. You see, John, like many in Jesus' time, were confused about the Messianic age. They thought it was a single return. They thought it was the age age they're currently in, the current age, and then the Messianic age. When God's plan, it was always two comings. It's so clear this side of the cross. I mean, we, we, we have the book of Revelation, and so we go, of course there's two comings. But for those before Christ... Even even for the prophets, 
they were not as clear. They would speak of the Messiah's wrath in one verse and then his mercy in the very next verse. I mean, I mean, take, for, for instance, Isaiah 35, verses 4 and 5. Listen to Isaiah 35, 4 and 5. Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Sounds a lot like John, doesn't it? The very next verse. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So John expected the judge, but got a teacher. John expected wrath, but he got grace. John expected a subjugator, and what he got is a sacrificial lamb. John's doubt were caused by improper expectations of Jesus. And so were the peoples. That was the second group of doubters here. In verses 7 through 15, Jesus addresses their shattered expectations. See, they were expecting something about Elijah to come. They were expecting to see Elijah physically come back before the Messiah comes. I mean, the very last words of the very last prophet in the very last book of our Old Testament says these words, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. 400 years of silence. So they're waiting for Elijah. In fact, the Jews are still waiting for Elijah, aren't they? If you visit a Jewish home on the Passover, you will see a table set. If the table has five members in their household, they will set a sixth table setting with a cup full of wine waiting for Elijah. It's to remind them of this very prophecy. It's to remind them to be looking for Elijah, which will be the harbinger of the Messiah. See, the Jews were looking for a literal, physical return for Elijah, some sort of resurrected Elijah. That was their expectation. So Jesus asks a couple rhetorical questions, if you remember, to get at this. He says, what did you go out to see? Were you going out to see if John was Elijah? Were your expectations met? And for most, they were not. Because there was no physical Elijah. But John came in the spirit of Elijah. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. As Elijah went up against the rulers of his day, Ahab and Jezebel, so did John. That's why he's in jail. He went up against Herod and Herodias. As Elijah preached the return of faithfulness to God, so did John. As Elijah condemned the false prophets of Baal, so did John. The false Pharisees. So Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John is the Elijah to come. So the people's expectations were shattered, which caused them to doubt. 
People's expectations, John's expectations were shattered, which caused him to doubt. And we, brothers and sisters, have to be careful of our expectations so that we don't tumble down into Doubting Castle. That's what Jesus is warning about in verse 6. If you look there, he says, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on the account of me. What are your expectations of me? If your expectations of me are false, that will cause you to doubt when I don't fulfill them. Be careful that your false expectations don't cause you to stay in Doubting Castle too long, brother. So let's set our expectations right. Brothers and sisters, do not expect Jesus to rescue you from your suffering. Expect him to walk beside you through it. Don't expect Jesus to heal your broken body. Expect him to give you a new one. Don't expect Jesus to heal your broken emotions. Expect him to give you the mind of Christ. Don't expect Jesus to fulfill all your wants. Expect him to give you what you need. Don't expect Jesus to make you perfect. Expect him to mold you along the way. Do not expect Jesus to take away all your sorrow. Expect Jesus to give you a joy that will transcend it. Don't expect Jesus to perfect this world. Expect him to perfect the next one. Do not expect Jesus to make you look strong. Expect Jesus to highlight your weaknesses. Do not expect Jesus to reward your obedience. Expect Jesus to be your reward. Do not expect the lion as John did. Expect the sacrificial lamb. Do not expect Jesus to heal all your relationships. Expect him to heal your relationship with God. For that's what he came to do. Not make all the wrongs right. That's his second coming. But to take all of your wrongs and make you right with God. That's the expectation we should have. Through his sinlessly, sinless life lived to become an acceptable sacrifice for God to his substitutionary death taking the wrath of God that you and I deserve in his own body and his resurrection from the dead that guarantees our salvation that is the greatest expectation we should ever have that is the greatest promise that we all have to keep close to us. That's the key to getting out of Doubting Castle, if you want to know the truth. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, do you remember how Christian and Hopeful escaped the dungeon? If you don't, let me read it to you. About midnight, Christian and Hopeful began to pray. Now a little while before it was day, 
Christian, half amazed, broke out in a passionate speech. What a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I may well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will open any lock in Doubting Castle. That's great news, Hopeful said. Pluck it out and try. Then Christian pulled out the promise and the door flew open with ease. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that gets you out of Doubting Castle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel. That is the key that unlocks, the promise that unlocks, the doubt that so entraps us. As one author put it, it is like iron bars that pins us to the ground. Help us never forget, as we often, often do, the promise you have given us in Jesus Christ. And help us to remember and slip that promise into the lock and free us from doubt. In Jesus' name, amen.